Shortly after arriving here at Pocosin Baptist Church in 2016, uh, my wife Holly and I, we were burdened to encourage our children to pray, uh, and not just to pray, but to be a family that prayed regularly for our church family. Uh, And so one of the things that we did to make it user-friendly for our little kids was uh, we took a bunch of popsicle sticks and we took our church directory and we wrote the names of all of our members on individual popsicle sticks and around the dinner table. Uh, and some of you have been with us when we've done this. We'd pull a popsicle stick out from a little, a little cup and we would pray together for whoever it was. And uh, not long after we started this practice, we were going through a season of life at PBC uh, where there was a lot of uh, knee replacement surgeries. So you have been around for a while, and you might remember that, uh, that summer, the summer of the new knee here at Pocosin Baptist Church, about five or six years ago, about five years ago. And um, maybe, maybe you've heard that old preacher saying about the storms of life, you know, you're either, you're either in a storm or you're just leaving a storm or you're about to enter a storm. That particular summer, it was like that, but with knees. Either you were having knee replacement surgery, or you were recovering from it, or you were about to receive it. And so, more often than not, when our kids would draw a name from a popsicle stick in those days, they'd be praying for somebody getting a new knee. A new knee. And I remember one day, our oldest daughter, Zoe, who was about five or six, and uh, she drew the name Jeremy Collins. And uh, Jeremy was away at college at the time. Zoe didn't really know Jeremy. Uh, but I still remember part of her prayer for Jeremy. She draws the name Jeremy Collins and she starts praying. And she says, Jesus, if he's having surgery, help him to have a great surgery. And if he's getting a new knee, help him to love his new knee. <laughs> Now, for the record, um, just a side note, I'm really grateful that we're in a season at PBC Life where we're not just praying for new knees, but new babies, right? Isn't that a good thing? I'm glad it's not just one or the other, too, by the way. I'm so grateful for that. I I look around here on a Sunday morning, and I see young and old, and I'm not going to tell you which one of you I think you are, but I'm just glad you're here. What a a joyful time in PBC Life. I'm so grateful for that. But in this season... Five years ago, um, at least for my kiddos, some of them really thought that praying for your church meant praying for people to get new knees. I share that story to illustrate to you all that prayer isn't natural to the sinful human being. Prayer is something that requires training. Which is why, out of all the things that Jesus could talk about in this sermon that we've been studying together as a church family, Jesus chooses strategically to teach his followers how to pray. Even if, like most pastor's kids, you're relatively comfortable with the idea of prayer, putting those ideas into right practice is 
another story. In fact, if we're honest, it's really, really easy for us to miss the point when we pray. So for example, Stuart, a little bit ago, led us in a prayer of confession for the sin of apathy. I wonder how many of you you, like me, caught yourself in that prayer. Oh, Lord, I'm apathetic about this prayer right now. Forgive me. You see how easy it is to miss the point when we pray? Jesus doesn't want you to miss the point. Jesus is a kind and good and sovereign king who wants his followers to pray without missing the point. In our text today, if you're not already there, grab your Bible, go to Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. In our text this morning, Jesus is introducing us to two groups of people that pray but miss the point. If you were with us last week, we took kind of a a big picture view of, of this section of Scripture, and we looked at three spiritual disciplines, prayer, giving, fasting, and how we're tempted to do it in order to be seen doing it. Here, let's look in verses 5 to 8 at two ways, two examples of, of, of how we can pray and yet miss the point while we pray. I don't know about you, but when I grew up in church, occasionally heard sermons about prayer. And I I even remember one particular year as a young man in our little Southern Baptist church in rural Ohio, having some sort of a, 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 I don't know, for lack of a better word, a prayer guru sort of guy. And he was, you know, some sort of expert on Christian prayer or some sort of thing. And he, he came in and did a, a week-long conference on prayer. And, and I just remember, even as a relatively young teenage boy, usually when I hear a sermon on prayer, I just felt guilty. I don't know about you, But when I read what the Bible says about prayer, when I hear teaching from the Bible about prayer, when I think about my own prayer life, I am very rarely, if ever, prone to pride. I don't know about you, but I don't think there's an area in my spiritual walk with Jesus where I feel more weak, more inept, more guilty, more of a failure than when I think about prayer. If that's anybody in this room, I want want you to hear something from me before we get started this morning. My desire is not for you to leave here thinking, I ought to pray. Now, you should. But I hope with God's help, not only this morning, but over the next few weeks as we kind of as we kind of pump the brakes a little bit and go really slowly through the Lord's Prayer together, I hope that God uses His Word to help you to feel not, I, I ought to pray, that's true, but I want to pray. I want to pray. We're starting off this morning in Matthew 6, verses 5 through 8. And in this entire section, 
we're going to hear from Jesus the answer to five basic questions about prayer. We're going to cover four this morning, and the fifth question, what should we pray, is going to be the topic of what's often called the Lord's Prayer, and we'll be walking through that together over the weeks ahead. But listen to Matthew 6, verses 5 through 8, one more time. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. If we're going to pray without missing the point, we need to answer some basic questions about prayer. The first question is this, when, when should we pray? When should we pray? I heard a story about a fisherman who was out to sea with his buddies, and uh, they're out there for a while, and a storm starts to brew, and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And uh, these fishermen, they don't know what to do. It's, it's really beyond anything they've ever seen before. They're starting to get frightened. And the only thing they can think of is, is somebody needs to pray. And they know this old fisherman. At one point in his life, he had been kind of a religious sort of person. And so they say, man, you need to pray we got to get out of this. Somebody's got to pray. And he says, I can't pray, you know. I haven't prayed in so long. And they said, no, you've got to pray. He says, it's, it's been like 15 years. They say, no, you've got to pray. They continue to press on him until finally he prays. His prayer goes something like this. Lord, you know that I haven't asked you for anything in 15 years. If you help us now and bring us to safety... I promise you I won't bother you for another 15. And we know, we know that's not how we should approach prayer. We know that. We know we shouldn't have these massive gaps in our prayer. But when should we pray? Notice what Jesus doesn't say. The King of kings and Lord of lords has the opportunity to tell you, Christian, here's when I want you to pray. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say three times a day, morning, noon, and night. Not that that's bad. That would be a common pattern, actually, in the Jewish synagogues in those days. Jesus doesn't say that. He doesn't say specific times of the day to pray. He doesn't say how long we should pray. By the way, he doesn't even say that you have to pray before every one of your meals. Now, if you read Jesus and read the Gospels, you'll find that Jesus regularly prays and gives thanks before eating. So it's a, a good idea to, to remember who's given you what you have received before you eat it. But there's actually not a Bible verse that commands that we pray a prayer before a meal. In fact, if we're not careful, we might turn that into just some sort of a religious ritual. 
Isn't it interesting? If you're honest, if you're like me, when, when, you, when you hear something about prayer, okay, where's my checklist? That's what I want. When am I supposed to do this thing? Let's get the instructions and let's knock this out. It's not what Jesus says. Instead, what Jesus says three times in our text is one word, when. Verses 5, 6, and 7. Jesus says, when you pray. Imagine a relationship with a spouse or a girlfriend, if you're dating age, boyfriend, or with one of your kids. Imagine a relationship governed by rules for when you communicate. Can you imagine saying to your wife, okay, I'm going to talk to you for five minutes every morning when I first wake up. I'm going to talk to you for a minute before every meal. And I'm going to talk to you for a few minutes every night before bed. That's all you get. On Sundays, I'm talking to you a little bit more but that's, I mean, that's what we're going to do here. No, of course, we, that, that sort of idea for a relationship wouldn't make sense. And, and herein is the point, right? Prayer is meant to be more bigger than some sort of religious ritual, some hoop that we jump through, some thing that we check off our list. It's meant to be springing from a relationship with the God to whom we are praying. Now, let me just be really transparent with you. I am a checklist Nazi. I shouldn't have said Nazi. I'm a checklist whatever. Uh, I love checklists. And I really do, true story, I really do have on my checklist a reminder to pray. Now, that helps me kind of. But there's a huge danger there. And then I turn that into just that, just that, right? It's not wrong for you as a Christian to set aside specific times to pray. It's not wrong for you to do that. But know how quickly your heart is prone to turn this into something that you merely cross off of your list. If your first instinct, when you hear that question, when should I pray? If your first instinct is to look for a number of times, you know, how many times do I got to do this to be okay? Or how long does it have to be? If that's your first instinct, then that is revealing something about our legalistically prone hearts. Jesus simply says when. He assumes if you're a follower of Jesus, you're going to pray. You're going to want to pray. One Bible teacher says that there's no better example of practical atheism than a prayerless Christian. I don't say that to make anyone feel guilty, but simply to say that if there's no desire for prayer in our hearts... There's, there's no, maybe, maybe even, desire, maybe, maybe you're at the point where you say, I don't know that I want to pray, but I want to want to pray. That's good. Let's start with that. Do you want to want to pray? 
If even that is there, then we want to see that fanned into flame so that prayer becomes something that you actually enjoy and want to do. When you pray, Jesus just assumes if you're one of his followers, this is going to be something that you will do. Number two, second question Jesus invites us to ask and that he answers in his teaching is why? Why should we pray? Why should we pray? On Friday night, we took the kids to Winter Jam in Norfolk, and uh, they got to watch one of their favorite bands, a Christian band by the name of Skillet. And I told my dad we went to see Skillet, and he asked me if that was some sort of a baking competition. Um, Anyways, uh, so we're at the concert, and if you know anything about Skillet, uh, it's kind of a loud Christian rock band. And uh, we're there with our kiddos, and Ezekiel's there for the first time at a concert, and he's got his big noise-canceling headphones on. And it's so funny because he's virtually oblivious to everything happening on the stage. Like, he doesn't, I mean, and Skillet's like shooting out fire, and there's pyrotechnics and smoke and really, really loud music and all this crazy stuff. And Ezekiel's totally oblivious. All he cares about is the people in front of him. Mom, dad, brothers, sisters. And, and we're trying to watch the show, you know, and trying to listen to this music and all this stuff. And he's, he's trying to have a conversation with us. Like, literally, he's like, and he's, see his lips moving. He's just talking and talking, looking at our faces, talking and talking and talking. I have no idea what you're saying, kid. But that's what he wants to do. He just wants to talk to us. It's, it's hard to imagine a more stark contrast than what we see here with the hypocrites in Jesus' day. If you were here with us last week, we, we talked about this group a little bit. They were more concerned with looking righteous than being righteous, you remember. These guys, they're, they're not really interested in talking to God through prayer. They just want you to think that they're talking to God through prayer. Look, look at the, the text, verse 5. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. What's the problem with these guys? The problem is not that they're praying. Okay? The hypocrite's problem is not they're praying. Jesus is, is expecting us to pray. He's teaching us how to pray. Prayer is good. Jesus models prayer for us. The problem is not that they're praying. The problem is not that they're praying publicly either. It's not wrong to pray publicly, right? Uh, we pray publicly in our services here at PBC every single week. Throughout the scriptures, there's examples of people that prayed public prayers. Dan, Daniel, Ezra, Moses, the apostles, Jesus himself prayed publicly. That's not wrong. It's also not wrong to pray publicly and, and actually be careful about what you say and, and try to speak with words that are careful and true. That's not wrong either. The problem with these hypocrites is why they're praying. Why are they praying? They're praying in order to be seen. The problem is what's going on in their hearts. Now, I want to stop for a second. Before we talk about how we should pray or why we should pray, I, I want us to stop for just one more moment and follow up on something from last week. I want us to think rightly about hypocrisy. I think, 
Because I've heard this a lot, and maybe so, some of you have too. I think that a lot of Christians think hypocrisy means doing one thing and feeling another. Right? So in other words, if I, if I pray, but I'm not really feeling it, I'm being a hypocrite. If I come to church and I sing, how great are you, Lord? If I sing that and I'm not really feeling it, I'm, I'm being a hypocrite. That is not hypocrisy. That's not hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is not doing one thing and feeling another. That's not what it means to be a hypocrite. If you're, in a, if you're married and, and you're faithful to your wife or your husband, even in the moments when you don't feel like being faithful, we applaud that. That's called fidelity. If, if you're faithful to attend church, even on a Sunday when you don't feel like being here, that's called obedience. If, if you're faithful to, to put the other person's needs above your own, even when you don't feel like doing it, that's called love. When, when the feelings don't line up with our actions, that's not hypocrisy. When the feelings don't line up with our actions, we ask God, change my feelings, change my heart, but we keep doing the right thing. Hypocrisy is when you act like you, you, you publicly, I believe this, but when no one else is watching, you're somewhere over here entirely. If you're in this room and you don't always feel like doing the, the Christian thing, be honest about that. But don't feel like the right thing to do is to wait until your feelings catch up. Be faithful. Be faithful and ask God to change your heart. Doing what is right when you don't feel like doing what is right is not hypocrisy. It's maturity. It's maturity. The hypocrites in this text, publicly praying these prayers as if they have great love and affection for God, but secretly they could care less what anybody thinks but the people cheering for them on the street corners. That's hypocrisy. And that's not why we should pray. They're praying for the wrong reasons. Well, why then should we pray? I love the simple answer in the New City Catechism, question number 38, about prayer. It says, prayer is pouring out our hearts to God. You, know, you want to know what prayer is? It's pouring out your heart to God. Pouring out your heart to God. You're talking to the God who made you. And, and not just about anything, you're, you're telling him about what's in your heart. That's why in the Psalms, you see the whole range of human emotions. You see Psalms that are prayers of, of joy and anger and frustration and fear. All of them brought to the Lord in prayer. Prayer is pouring out your heart to God. That's exactly what Zeke was doing at that concert. He's just pouring out his heart to his mom and dad, right? That's what prayer is. Why do we pray to pour out our heart to God? John Calvin in the Institute said that prayer is the chief exercise of faith. In other words, it's, it's where the, the rubber meets the road of your faith. You're pouring out your heart to God in conversation, in relationship. That's what you and I should do when we pray. Even when we don't feel like praying, 
So if you, like me, found yourself apathetic about a prayer of confession about apathy, you tell God, I'm sorry. You changed my heart, Lord. Why do we pray to pour out our hearts to God? What about how? How should we pray? How should we pray? Uh, Ann Gaylor is one of the founding members of a group of American atheists called the Freedom From Religion Foundation. And she once coined a phrase, nothing fails like prayer. That's what she said, nothing fails like prayer. Perhaps you've seen it on a bumper sticker. Uh, and another atheist took it a step further and he said, if prayer actually worked, everyone would be a millionaire. Nobody would ever get sick and die, and both football teams would always win, end quote. Now, I want to suggest to you, that way of thinking is actually correct if prayer is a vending machine that as long as you put the right coins in, you get what you want. If that's what prayer is, then yeah, this thing doesn't work. But that's not what prayer is. It's not what prayer is. And Jesus deliberately wants us to, he brings up this second group of people, first the hypocrites, now the Gentiles or the pagans, and he wants us to see they have a defunct view of what prayer is. Look at the text, verses 7 and 8. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. What does Jesus mean when He says, don't heap up empty phrases? That, that's actually one word in the original language. Empty phrases is one word. And it's only used here in the entire New Testament. In fact, we can't even find use of this word anywhere else unless it's referring to this verse. It's a very rare word. Because it's of, it, of its obscurity, it's been translated differently by different uh, translations. And so, for example, the, uh, the CEV says, uh, when you pray, don't talk on and on. So they're translating empty phrases as like, you know, kind of going on and on in prayer. I don't think that's the best way to translate this word uh, because Jesus isn't against long prayers. If he is, our elders are in trouble, aren't we? <laughs> Jesus isn't against long prayers. Uh, G places like Luke chapter 6, verse 12, we know that Jesus pulls an all-nighter praying. Jesus prayed long prayers sometimes. He doesn't always pray long prayers, but sometimes he prays long prayers. So Jesus isn't saying, don't pray for a long time. You don't have to pray for a long time, by the way. But it's okay to pray for a long time. Uh, another translation, the KJV, uh, uses, uh, translates it this way. It says, when you pray, do not use vain repetitions. Now, this implies that Jesus is against being repetitive in prayer. I, I still remember in seminary, sometimes we would hear people pray and uh, as seminary students, we would like critique how many times they said this word. I mean, how arrogant and judgmental is that? My own sinful heart, right? Like, we're, we're like judging how repetitious someone is in their prayer. Now, it's generally a good idea, I suppose, to, to be careful that you're not just repeating the same phrase over and over again. But Jesus isn't against being repetitive in prayer. 
In fact, he tells an entire parable, Luke chapter 18, about a persistent widow who's repetitive and goes to the judge over and over and over again. And Jesus uses her as a positive example of prayer. It's not wrong to be repetitive when you pray. In fact, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Matthew 26, verse 44, says that Jesus three times prays the exact same thing. He was repetitive. It's not wrong to be repetitive when you pray. I think that William Tyndale, who first translated the Bible into English, translated this word right when he translated it babble. Other translations will say stammer, prattle, babble, or or mutter mindlessly. Uh, Dan Doriani says this. He says, their problem was their mindless repetition, a tongue that wagged while the mind slept. That's the problem with empty phrases. You're just wagging your tongue and your mind is completely detached from the process. That's how the nations pray. When I was in seminary, we were, um, we were able in a world missions class to visit a few different centers of religion in Memphis, Tennessee. So we went and visited a, uh, a Hindu temple and a Muslim mosque and uh, we watched what they did and were able to talk with them and they talked a little bit with us and we told them what we believed as Christians and they told us what they believed as Hindus and Buddhists and Muslims. And it's very common in other religions for prayer to simply be kind of like a mindless ritual. All you have to do is say the words. It's kind of like a magic formula. You say all these things, you get it just right. Your heart doesn't matter. Your mind doesn't matter. Just say it. That is not Christian prayer. That's what Jesus says. The heart of the problem is in verse 6 where it says, they think that they will be heard for their many words. Listen to me, Christian. God is not a pinata. Prayer is not a stick. As long as you hit it hard enough or good enough, you get what you want. Prayer is not a vending machine. As long as you get the right coins in or get enough people to do it for you or do it loud enough or long enough, you get what you want. That is not the way that prayer works. If you're in this room and you've ever been led to believe that, I'm sorry, that's not true. Maybe you're in this room and and you've kind of given up on prayer because you were taught that and you prayed and you prayed and you prayed and there came a crisis, a moment in your life where you asked God for something and it never came. You gave up because obviously prayer doesn't work. It was never meant to work that way, dear friend. Jesus says, don't pray like that. How then should we pray? How then should we pray? We should pray with our hearts and minds engaged in what we're saying should pray with our hearts and minds engaged. Prayer is not a magic formula. It's not about getting the words just exactly right. It's not about getting enough people to do it. It's about pouring out our hearts to God. If God wants a relationship with you, friend, don't you think he wants your heart and mind engaged with him as you're talking to him? Don't you think he wants that? 
That's what he's after here. Uh, last week in our pastoral residency program, we, we, um, we regularly do a debriefing of the service and talk about things that encouraged us and, and things that we can grow in. And one of the things that came up in our conversation was how easy it is for our minds to wander when we pray together as a church. Can we just be honest about that? Like, if, if you're in this room and, and, like, on autopilot, you stay engaged through all of our service, that's amazing. It's, it is actually hard to stay focused. I don't know about anybody else, but that, it's hard for me. I, I think that's actually a good thing. I think that's good. It forces us. This is something that's bigger than what's happening on ESPN today. This is bigger than that. This is the God that whispers and stars appear. And he invites us to come to him in prayer. And so if it causes us to to kind of discipline our minds to focus, that's good. We need to do that. We must do that. How do we pray? With hearts and minds engaged in relationship with the one to whom we're praying. Which leads to our final question. To whom do we pray? To whom do we pray? I think the best way to rightly engage your mind and your heart when you're praying is remembering who it is you're praying to. A small view of God will lead to a small view of prayer. Think small thoughts about God, and you will think small thoughts about prayer. I want you to notice a few of the things that Jesus teaches us about who God is just in these few verses. Notice first that God is omnipresent. When you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. There is no place, Christian, no place, unbeliever, where you can go where God is not present. He is everywhere. And all of his presence, his, his fullness, he, 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 it's not like part of him is here and part of him is in Santa Fe and part of him is in Timbuktu. He is fully present wherever he is. He is omnipresent. And so Jesus says, even if you go in your closet and shut the door and it's just you and your thoughts and your mind, God is there too. He's omnipresent. He is everywhere. He can see your heart. He knows you better than you even know yourself. All your anger, all your frustration, all your anxiety, all your fear, he sees all of it, and he invites you to talk to him about it. That's incredible. God invites you to do that. The God who is everywhere. God is also Verse 8 tells us, omniscient. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. He knows what you need before you even bring it up. I know for many of us, the first question we ask then is, well, why, why pray at all? If God knows what I need before I even ask him, why pray? 
I love the way Sam Storms put this. He said, we must not presume that God will provide for us apart from our prayers what he has ordained to provide for us only through our prayers. Listen, God so cares about a relationship with you that he ordained the universe to work in such a way that he responds to your need through your prayers. We often have not because we ask not. Just know when you're asking God for something, you're not telling him something he doesn't already know. You're not bringing him new information. He already knows. To me, this should should be entirely freeing because you don't have to work yourself up and kind of explain to him, hey, here's what I really need. He already knows what you need. In fact, that thing you think you need, you really don't need that, and he knows that too. But he also knows you're going to ask for it anyways. But he loves you, and he wants you to talk to him. He's omnipresent. He's omniscient. Those are two attributes of God's greatness but also there's attributes of his goodness. In fact, a a great God is not very comforting if he's not also good. And Jesus shows us that this God we pray to is great and good. He's an omnipresent, omniscient, all-powerful God. He's also a good God who rewards. Look at verse six again. Your father who sees in secret will reward you. An omnipresent God who sees everything you do only to punish you every time you mess up is not very comforting. But what if there's an omnipresent God who sees everything you do and is looking for opportunities to reward you? That's the God that Jesus is telling us about in Matthew 6. Notice how he connects his omnipresence to his reward. God sees you, Christian, and he delights in rewarding you. Even if you're in this room and you feel like an incredible failure at prayer, God sees that too, and he's looking for ways to reward you. Just the other day, we realized um, that Uh, we realized another challenge that our son was having. I'm going to talk a lot about Ezekiel these days. We talk about prayer. Um, I've shared a little bit before about how he's just, you know, had to adapt to using the English language. Also had cleft palate surgery, so he's getting used to speaking and all that sort of stuff. And so we're teaching him along the way, trying to teach him words, and he's growing a lot. It's been incredible. But the other day, uh, we're, we're washing his hands after using the restroom or something, and and he gets the soap on his hands, and he says, soap on it, soap on it. And he's been saying that for months and months, soap on it. And, but it dawned on me as I'm doing this, that's what he thinks soap is. So we were telling him, you know, put soap on your hand, put soap on it. And he'd say, okay, soap on it, and he, he washes his hands. But he actually thinks that soap is called soap on it. And so we're like, no, it's soap. Oh, soap, oh, and now all of a sudden, okay, it's soap. Great, we got that one. Cross that one off the list. We can move on, right? In that moment when I realize he thinks that soap is soap on it, what do I do? Come on, kid, are you kidding me? We got to do this again? No. I laugh and chuckle and love him, and I tell him, here's how you say it. I'm, listen, I'm not, I'm not the father of the year. But your heavenly father is amazing. 
when you come to him in prayer and you sometimes say things wrong, what's his response going to be to you if you belong to him through Jesus? Love, affection, forgiveness, care, kindness. Why would you not want to talk to him? He's omnipresent, he's omniscient, he rewards, he provides. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. Jesus says that in verse 8, to comfort you. Listen, it's not comforting if God knows what you need, but doesn't provide what you need. So the implication is the God who knows what you need will also provide what you need. And if you were paying attention from Romans 8, as we began the service this morning, God promises to provide what we need because he didn't withhold his very own son. Again, this doesn't mean we get what we want, but it does mean we have a God who actually knows what we need and he will provide what we need. So who do we pray to? Pray to this God, this God who's everywhere, who sees everything, who knows everything, who wants to reward his people, who, who loves us, who delights in meeting our needs. Well, we began this morning thinking about how prone we are to miss the point when it comes to prayer. Well, there's another way that we might miss the point when it comes to this passage in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, this portion of scripture I sometimes think is one of the most searching and humbling in the entire realm of scripture. But we can read these verses in such a way as to really miss their entire point and teaching and certainly without coming under condemnation. What is he talking about? Martin Lloyd-Jones says, if, if he was to ask you, What's a really sinful person look like? What would you say? Just imagine. Let's just, let's just do that for just a second. Imagine a real sinner, really bad one. What are you thinking of? Are you thinking of alcoholic, drug abuser, an abortion doctor, a murderer, somebody on death row? What are you thinking of? So a really, really, really bad sinner. Who are you thinking of? That's the type of person we usually think of. Here's what... Martin Lloyd-Jones is saying, Jesus is asking us to admit that in this text, the really, really, really bad sinner is a man on his knees praying. In other words, even the most religious person in this room, there is nowhere you can go that has not been corrupted by your sin. You can't even do this prayer thing. You can't even do that without it being polluted by the stain of your sin. Sin is, is so corrupting, so, so depraving that even in our attempt to have a conversation with our Heavenly Father, it can be corrupted by sin. And that's bad news. Maybe you're in this room, and your takeaway up to this point is that you need to work harder at being a, being a person who prays. Listen to me. What you need before that is a new heart. That's what we receive in the gospel. We receive 
a new heart. We were born again. God sent his son to live a sinless life and die a sinner's death so that on the cross, all who trust in him, all of that pollution, all of that sin, all of that corruption is paid for on the cross. And we are given in Jesus a new heart. That's what we invite you to. If you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, what you need is not to try harder at praying, but to admit that you can't do any of this, that you have sinned against a holy God who sees all and ask him for his forgiveness for Jesus' sake. If you're in this room and you're a Christian, Jesus' teaching on prayer should humble us. Because the truth is, we're all prone to fall into one or more of these errors. But it should also delight us. Because we have a Father who sees our sin, forgives it on the cross, and delights to hear us when we pray. Would you bow with me as we pray together? Jesus, we are so grateful for you. We are grateful for how you teach us to pray. We ask that you would, over the next few weeks as a church, you would teach us to pray. Lord, I pray that you would begin to work in us a desire to pray, or maybe even just the desire to want to pray. Lord, I pray that if there's any in this room that are humbled or broken by their prayerlessness, I pray that they would confess that to you. And even in that, they would find you to be a father who delights to forgive his people when they sin. 